You can have a seat this morning. Jen, Matt, team, Jeff, thank you so much for leading us today. I don't know about you, but there have been moments where I have, I've had to sing myself right out of a funk, where the Lord has blessed me with his presence as I just extol the goodness of God, as I just remind myself through song of his goodness, his grace, his love, his mercy. And sometimes we just need to sing ourselves right out of that funk, right? It's good to be here, gathered in God's house. We've got a lot on, in store this morning, a lot that we're going to be doing. And so it's exciting to be uh, with you all today. And thank you for uh, joining us as we launch into our sermon on Mark. We're, we're in the book of Mark uh, again this week. And uh, last week we looked at a few uh, stories and parables uh, of Jesus. But today we're going to do something a little different. But before we get to Mark, sorry Matt, I'm going to throw a little bit of a audible here. Before we get to Mark, there's a passage in the Old Testament that provides great foundation for us today. And as we were singing this this morning about the storms and singing this morning about God's faithfulness in those storms and singing this morning about how in the valleys or the mountaintops we can still praise the Lord, I want to return to a very familiar passage in Psalm 46. It says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. As we just pause in that moment today, we, we are here to study a great passage in Mark, a very familiar passage in Mark. But as you're about to see, that, that foundational passage of, of Psalm 46 provides for us some good background and framework today. Because as is often the case, our disciple friends are about to find themselves just on the other side of their comfort level and their control, which is a good place for us to be. I often tell people that my experience has been the greatest things God has ever done in my life have not been within the context of my comfort zone, but just on the other side of it. Actually, sometimes it's really far on the other side of it. Just on the other side is where he gives me the nudge and the encouragement to keep going, The good stuff is way out there, right? And any of us who've been walking with the Lord for any measure of time would be able to tell you that's that's the case. That the greatest victories we've seen are when we are completely and utterly helpless. The greatest provision we've seen is when we're destitute and we cannot fix the situation. The greatest work of God we've ever seen is when we realize that we are at the end of our own strength and abilities. Psalm 
46 reminds us that when that happens, when, when all that we thought was stable, like the mountains themselves, when they start moving and giving way, and to that moment precisely that we can remind ourselves that God is with us. He's not aloof. He's not, he's not far off. He's not distant and separate from our suffering or our fear or our anxiety or our worry. He's not condemning those things, but he is close to us in those things. He's with us. He is our fortress. It is in that. It's the fact that he's a very present help in a time of trouble that allows us to rejoice, that allows us to be calm. It's not just that he's powerful, but that he's powerful and he's close. He's present. Mark chapter 4 is where we're going this morning. Jesus, in the last uh, last two weeks, we've looked at four different parables. What happened there was that Jesus hopped in a boat, floated out from the shoreline, and began to teach the crowds who were pressing in upon him. And he taught them all day. And here's where we come in Mark chapter 4 in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind. And said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? A quick word of prayer this morning. Father, we recognize that we are infinitely small in sight of your majesty and holiness and power. We recognize today that you are the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer of life, that by the word of your power you hold it all together and our words pale in comparison. And yet we recognize the concurrent truth, God, that you are present with us. And Lord, I pray that that presence would move us to trust today. Help us, God, to see in your word what you want us to see. Open our eyes and our hearts to receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. I'm going to break this story into a couple pieces. Quick sections. We'll close up and we'll observe the Lord's Supper today. It's going to be a wonderful day in the house of the Lord. The first thing we see in the first few verses here is a surprise storm, which really shouldn't have come as a surprise because the Sea of Galilee was known for its storms. It's actually known for its surprise storms. So it wasn't really much of a surprise at all. The Bible says on that day, and that we can't forget that the day we're talking about is a day uh, that began at the, in chapter 4 when Jesus, with the crowds pressing in on him, took his place in a boat and began to teach them from that position. He taught them with parables. The parable of the sower, the parable of the lamp, the parable of the seeds, and the parable of the mustard seed. And we looked at all of those in succession. 
And Mark reminds us that after that, Jesus continued to teach them in many parables. Jesus spent a whole day standing on a boat, shouting at the shoreline, teaching people about the kingdom of God. Any of you who have ever spent much time standing in front of a crowd preaching the Bible know that the amount of energy expended in that process is, is nothing short of exhausting. Depending on the crowd, depending on the, the, the urgency of the message, depending on what God's doing. I had the great privilege for a number of years of teaching on the island at Word of Life with high school students. At 9 o'clock in the morning, I don't know if any of you have, a, have an inside track to the program director up there. 9 o'clock in the morning, right? So I'd get up, I'd, I'd take a boat out, I'd stand in front of a bunch of teenagers who were carved up because of the pancakes they just ate. 9 o'clock in the morning, they went to bed at like 3, Right? And I would have to teach them the amount of energy that you have to bring, the amount of passion that you have to convey, the, the, like the, the focus, the mental focus that you have to bring. Like I would get off the island, take a boat back, and collapse. I, I couldn't go anywhere else. I had to take a nap at 10 o'clock in the morning. I was so exhausted. I can't imagine Jesus standing on a boat and teaching for an entire day. Sunday afternoon, my, I'm not going to lie, the older I get, the more excited I get about my Sunday afternoon nap. And if you are, thank you, that's good preaching, right? And if you are with me on Sunday afternoon, anytime between 1 and 1.15, you'll see the switch go off, right? Like, I'm, I'm engaged, I can have a conversation, I can laugh, we can be together and talking, but all of a sudden, I don't hear you anymore. And I'm just, I'm looking for the, the softest, flattest place to, to put myself down. Right? I don't need long, but I need it right then. I can't imagine Jesus all day. Then at the end of the day, rather than swinging by Taco Bell, he says, let's go to the other side. The Bible says that when that happened, they took him just as he was, meaning he didn't get off the boat, he didn't go eat, he didn't go refresh himself. No, they climbed in with him and they immediately set off to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The sea isn't, much of, isn't actually a sea at all. It's a large freshwater lake. Still today provides most of Israel's fresh water. It's a beautiful lake. It provides uh, lush fishing grounds. It is amazing that God provided it for the nation. But in, in the process of also providing all that, it's also very dangerous to travel on because of where it's located. Jesus wants to go to the other side. Interesting that they left the crowds and they went. Some of us would look at this and say, Jesus, you're so successful. Look at all the people you're drawing. What are you doing? Stay where you are and continue to minister to these people. But as we've already seen in Mark's gospel, Jesus is fond of letting us know that his mission is more important than the crowds that he's gathering. That he's got to keep moving. He's got to keep advancing. He's got to continue to preach his message that is, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is near, it is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And what we'll see next week is that as he crosses the lake, there is, a, there is a divine appointment waiting for him on the other side that'll make your toes curl, right? As he sees the demoniac and he releases him from his bondage. He has an appointment set. He needs to get there. So he leaves the crowds and he sets out. And there were other boats with him. It's an interesting part of the story we often miss. It wasn't one boat with 12 disciples and Jesus. There were other boats with him because the band of followers was bigger than just 12. There were 120 in the upper room. 
the band of followers were the faithful disciples of Jesus that were coming with. He had a, he had a little floating armada, right? They just kind of went out across the Sea of Galilee. And all of a sudden, the Bible says a great windstorm, a great storm. The NIV, I think, says a furious squall kicked up, which is not surprising. John MacArthur mentions that the, the Sea of Galilee is famous for these kinds of storms, that the cool air that flows down from the mountainous region off of Mount Hermon comes and collides with the warm air on the surface of the lake. It's like a big bowl. It's the lowest freshwater lake uh, on the earth, some 650 feet below sea level. In the summertime, it's very predictable. Between 12 and 6 every afternoon, there is strong, steady winds. And in the wintertime, the predictability is the unpredictability of the storm. That the cold water and the cold wind collides and creates furious squalls, sometimes producing swells of six to eight feet on this freshwater lake. It, so it's an aptly named great storm. Like it, it's not just a passing squall. It's not just a quick shower. No, no, a furious storm kicked up and the fishermen were in trouble. So much so, the boat begins to fill up. The waves are crashing over it. I think Matthew tells us, right? The water coming up so fast and furious, the disciples felt unable to keep up with bailing it out. These guys are supposed to be comfortable on the water, right? They're fishermen. They have spent their entire lives on the water. And if they're upset, something's going on. The first time I ever got to hike in the Adirondacks, Joel and I still blame your husband for this. You know that, right? He's not here. We need to pray for Pastor Duke. He's preaching at a funeral this, uh, today for his niece's husband in Ohio, but pray for him as he's gone. But he took me on a death march one time because he told me, hey, you're, you're going to love this. It's going to be so great. And I'm like, uh, sure, sounds good. I didn't realize what he meant was I'm going to kill you in the Adirondacks and leave you to rot, right? So we, we hike up, and, and it was grueling, treacherous. I probably whined about this before. So anyway, we'll, just, we'll move past all of that. We get to the end of the day. He told me we'd be out of the woods at five. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he didn't have a clock, but we said five o'clock we'll be out of the woods. It's like 9, 30, 10 o'clock. It's dark. I've run out of water and food, and I think we're going to die. And, it, and two, two, count them, two experienced 46ers pull out a map, and they get this look in their eyes, right? This look in their eyes that says, oh no, I don't know where we are. And at that point, Scott Fisher and I prepared to kill them both right there. We were, if, if this goes down, we're going to eat them to survive, right? If they don't know what's going on, I'm in trouble. The fishermen have spent, their, these guys spend their entire lives on this lake. They're scared. They can't keep up. Something's going on. The Bible says that Jesus was asleep on a cushion. Okay, well, if he'd been teaching all day, that's pretty understandable. He's exhausted. He's also pretty at peace with the will of the Father. So he's not exactly anxious or worried. He's asleep in the boat in the middle of this furious storm that has the fishermen all worked up. And, and as one pastor pointed out, when the fishermen are asking the carpenter for help, something's wrong, right? Sleeping on a cushion. Pointing out, though, the humanity of Jesus. John MacArthur mentioned that in his, pas in his message on this passage. That Jesus was not unfamiliar with the difficulties and the frailties of humanity. That he got tired and weary too, just like you and I. That he needed rest and needed, he needed to sleep. All right, 
So then he brings a calm. The second part of the story is that a calm comes. The disciples, in the middle of the storm, as Alistair Begg noted, the disciples were keenly aware that they had lost control of the situation. Not that they ever really had it anyway, but God is kind enough to give us the, the, the appearance of control from time to time. And then he's also good enough to knock that right out from under us and remind us that we've never really been in control anywhere. And, I, and I'm sure you've been in those situations, right? You have felt like the foundation and the stability of your life in one moment was taken away from you. So maybe the doctor calls and says, hey, listen, about those tests, I'd like you to come in. We need to talk some more. Maybe a spouse has sat you down and said, listen, I'm not sure I want to work on this anymore. Maybe it's just better to cut bait and walk away. Maybe you've been called into your boss's office. And he says, look, there's not much more I can do. Layoffs are coming. I've got to downsize. Nothing personal. You're just a low man on the pole. You got to go. Maybe your kid sits down and lets you know that although faith seems to be the foundation for you and dad, I just don't see it that way and I'm not going to live my life that way. Or maybe they're processing questions about sexual identity, same-sex attraction, and they're not sure how all that's going. And, And you feel in that moment like the foundation is gone. You feel like you're adrift. Ten minutes ago, I felt like everything was stable. Now you're telling me I could die? Now you're telling me we're getting divorced? Now I lost my job? Ten minutes ago, I was fine, and I was in control. And it's almost like the Lord's saying, no, you weren't. You've never been in control. And you're not in control now, I am. I am. In a moment, your world is not nearly as tidy and neat and clean as you thought it was. Not as predictable as you were banking on. You are aware that you are not the master of the situation. And the disciples are there in this boat. They realize that without some significant development, without something really powerful, really big, really outside the ordinary happening, they're going to die. So they did what only they could do. Like they had no other option. They went and woke up Jesus. You, you seem, it seems to indicate a sense of urgency here, right? Let's go get the miracle worker. Maybe he can cook something up for us here. So they wake him up. Notice how they greet him. Do you not care that we are perishing? Why do they automatically go to his love for them? Why do they automatically go to the point where they say, you don't care about me because the circumstances are uncomfortable? I'm scared, and this is really jacked up. The only reasonable conclusion is that you don't really love me. How close is that to our reaction? Is, is this a safe, it's a safe place, right? right you won't, it's not like it's on the internet or anything. How many times has something significant occurred in your life, and if you're honest, you looked up at God and said, really? I thought I, thought I was doing the right thing. You, you couldn't just help me out there? Which is a really snarky way of saying, you don't care about me enough to just make this easy? This is exactly our story. We wake him when we finally get to him. 
after trying to bail the water out ourselves for a while, we finally realize that our efforts aren't getting anywhere, so we go find him and say, listen, I've done all I can do. You need to fix this, and apparently you don't even care about me enough to make sure that my life is smooth sailing. As if he ever promised that our life was going to be easy and smooth. As though he ever gave us any indication that this life would be filled with anything other than persecution and heartache. My goodness, you are whole, we, not you, we, I, forget you, I hold him to a job description that he never agreed to. I judge his character and I judge his love for me based on my understanding of what is acceptable and true not his. And I don't let his wisdom shape my reaction to my circumstances. These guys, oh, I love them. And I want to strangle them all at the same time. Right? This is painfully close to the way we do this. And we feel so overwhelmed. We feel so under-resourced. We feel so completely empty that sometimes we can't even bring ourselves to sing ourselves out of this mess. We don't want to seek God's wisdom. We don't know where to go, and we just feel so empty. And if we're not careful, we can get drawn right into that lie that the reason this is happening is because God doesn't care about you. My friends, God's love for us isn't validated by our comfort. The love of God for us is validated. He actually tells us in Romans 5.8, God's love was demonstrated for us in this. Right here it is. Here's the description of God's love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The statement of God's love for us is not in the predictability or the comfort of our circumstances, but in the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. And in those moments, we need the Spirit's help to do what Paul says, to take captive every thought and bring it under submission to Jesus. So when the enemy whispers, you know, you're in this mess because you're an awful person, you seize it and you draw it under the authority of Jesus and say, no, 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 no. Every sin has been washed clean in the blood of Christ. All, all of it is washed away. And when he says, the only reason this is happening is because God doesn't love you, you draw it close and say, no, no, God's love for me was displayed in this, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. It's a dark day for the sailors. Jesus wakes up, and we're not told what he says to them, but I, I hope he gave them a stern look. If my children did this to me, I would give them a stern look. Don't you love me? Yeah, that's the, that's, the, that's the right response. I put this roof over your head. I put food on your table every day. I, you don't run around naked. You got clothes. That's right. I don't love you. That's the whole point, right? He, he gets up and he goes to the wind and he rebukes the wind. He speaks to the wind. And then he says to the sea, the six to eight foot swells possibly, peace, be still. In his best dad voice, he musters up. He says, shh, stop it. Like, you all don't do that. Knock it off. And the Bible says, instantly, a great calm came. The word great is is mega. A great storm, a great calm. It's kind of playing on the words there. The great storm is met with a great calm because of the power of the word of Jesus. 
Okay, now listen. It's not like the wind slowly died down and you could explain it with a natural phenomenon. This lake is like 12 by 8 miles long. Like it's a big, big lake. And it's all torn up. It would take a long time for the water to settle down. It wasn't just like a natural experience. Oh, well, the storm passed over and the clouds were done. No, no. They listened to the sound of his voice and obeyed. And then he looks at his disciples, who I imagine at this point were about to lose control of their bodily functions. Like I might have been. And he says to them, why are you afraid? Don't you have faith? Oof. Wow. So now we have a new storm. (laughs) There was a great surprise storm. Jesus brings a calm, and now he brings a storm of confrontation where he looks at his followers and says, why are you afraid? Don't you have any faith? He brings the heat of challenge to their response. And as one pastor reminded us, this is indeed a faith lesson for the disciples and for us today. Basically, he's saying, don't you know who I am? You you don't have enough faith to believe I can care for you? Guys, you don't have to worry. You don't need to panic. You don't have to be subject to this crippling anxiety. You can trust me. You've seen me. You've watched. I've healed people. Set people free from demonic oppression. I could feed thousands with loaves and fishes. I could speak with authority. I called you and you walked away from your whole life to come follow me. You haven't seen me? You don't know who I am? Have you been with me this long? Oh, these guys give me hope. They turn the world upside down and they're just as much bumbling fools as I am. Praise the Lord. There's hope for people like us. And they, yes, of course they've seen his power. Yes, they've seen his miracle. They've seen him show power over sickness and disease. But they still didn't quite understand it all. And now, see, in the storm they were afraid because they thought they were going to die. Now they're afraid because they realize they're standing in the presence of holiness. And as the author of Hebrews reminds us, it's a terrible thing, terrifying thing, to fall into the hands of a living God. Remember what happened when Isaiah was face to face with God Almighty. I'm a man of unclean lips, woe unto me. See, before they were scared because they were sure they were going to die. Now they're terrified because they realize this person that they're with possesses a power that they can't understand and they can't control. And with that... The chapter closes. All right, so what? What does that mean for us? Surely the application is not about rowing, right? Although some of us have been in some pretty nasty storms on canoes. Like I said, you follow Pastor Duke around long enough, you're going to get into trouble a time or two, right? I've been in some choppy waters in a canoe with him. But what does this have to do? What? The storm and the one who speaks to the wind and the waves. How does that affect me? We say all the time, the Bible's real and it's relevant. But how? How is that story relevant to me today? I'm not stuck in a boat and I'm not in in a great storm. I I couldn't even float out there if I tried. It's frozen. I have to wait seven months for the one week of summer we get up here. 
What does it have to do with me? And I think there are really great ways to see this. Mark reveals to us today, and and really the, the, the weight of this passage is one big theme. And here it is. Mark is telling us about the power and the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That he is not a mere teacher, not simply a moral example, not a political reformer, not even just a miracle worker, but he is the creator in the flesh, and that the authoritative sound of his voice, the creation listens. The key to this story is, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Demons obey him. Sickness and disease obey him. We obey him. But my goodness, the very creation obeys him. Who is this? This is not a mere man. Okay, that is the big theme of this passage. But here's how that theme plays out in our lives. God, firstly, God oftentimes in his control over our lives leads us to places where storms and uncertainty are our reality. And he doesn't do that because we're running from him all the time. These guys were faithful. He put them there for a reason, to reveal himself to them. God has enabled you. Some of you are walking through some really challenging seasons right now today. And God has ordained your life and allowed these seasons in your life not to punish you, but to reveal himself to you in a deeper way. Your life today consists of uncertainty, insecurity, feelings of of listlessness, like you need an anchor. And you're not there because he doesn't love you. You're there because he loves you enough to reveal himself to you in the midst of it. The reality is uncertainty is the certain thing in our lives. The unpredictability is the predictable. Because God's ways aren't our ways. And be honest again with what we said at the very beginning. The greatest things God has ever done in our lives have not been the things that happen according to our plans. But they happen when our plans blow up. And God reveals that he has a better plan for us. So that was the first thing. He leads us to places of uncertainty. Secondly, the statement of God's love is not the comfort of our circumstances, but his presence in the midst of the storm. Hear me out. The statement of God's love is not the comfort of our circumstance, but his presence in the storm. That he has covenanted with us That he will be ours and we will be his and he won't leave us or forsake us. Remember what the psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I've got next level skills? Because I've been this way before? No, no, no. Because you are with me. The statement of God's love is not the comfort of our circumstance, but his presence in the storm. He loves you enough that he's not going to leave you. But he's going to hold you. And thirdly today, and I think this is the most powerful thing for me, is that in his presence we find strength and confidence. We find the security in the storm 
because he is the one who we know can instantly bring it all to peace and calm. He has that ability. He has the ability for you to show up at your doctor's appointment next week, them to look at the scans and go, I don't know what's going on here. Last week there was a spot. Today there's no spot. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I just had a National Lampoon's moment. I'm not going there. but In his presence, he can instantly bring it all to peace and calm. And here's the truth, guys. It's that holy combination. It's the holy combination of God's immense power as creator and his presence as a tender shepherd. That's where the intersection lies. Why is it that we can have confidence staring down the barrel of cancer? Because God is infinitely powerful enough to, to clean it all up. But he is close enough to walk with me through it, even if he chooses not to. Why is it that I can have confidence when I lose my job and my wife and children need food and I don't know where it's coming from? Because God is infinitely powerful enough to provide. And he's tender enough to walk with me and hold me and to hear my cries and my concerns. It's the holy combination of his power and his presence that strengthen us to deal with the storm. Some of you guys are walking today through one of the toughest storms you've ever faced. And it does feel like the rug is just pulled out from under you. And nobody knows what's going on. Nobody, nobody can pinpoint what to do. Nobody knows what exactly is happening. It feels like you're just adrift at sea. What you need to be reminded of today is the infinite power of God that at the sound of his mere voice, all of it could be changed. And also that he's promised to walk with you in this valley of the shadow of death. And your fear can be chased away by the perfect love of God in Christ. Some of you today are walking in the height of euphoria. There's, there's no, not a cloud in the sky. You are good to go. You, somebody has left you a bunch of money. You got a great new job. Somebody dropped off a basket full of puppies at your house. It is great. Life is good. Be reminded today that God in his infinite mercy has given you every good gift. And he's present with you in that too. He doesn't want you to push him to the side until you need him. He wants you to celebrate his goodness and gifts with you today as well. Because his presence, his presence isn't any closer in the storm than it is in the, on the mountaintop. The intersection that holy combination of God's infinite power and his tender presence is where we find strength in the storm. And his disciples learned that the hard way. Why are you afraid? Don't you have faith? I wonder if he would say the same to us. I know he'd say the same to me. Over things that really aren't that important. Right, stuff, stuff that really doesn't matter in the scheme of eternity. Where I've looked at him and said, wait, what's this about? I thought you loved me. Don't you care about me? And God in his mercy cares about us so much that he refuses to let our lives be nothing but comfort and ease. Because if they were comfort and ease, 
we wouldn't experience him the same way. But he reveals himself to us as a refuge, as our strength, when we don't have strength and we feel exposed and vulnerable. He reveals, uh, reveals himself to us as our father when we need a protector and a provider. He reveals himself to us as Lord and Savior when we recognize how overrun with sinful desires we really are. He reveals himself to us as our hope when all earthly hope has been taken from us. It's that holy combination of his infinite power and his tender presence. As we close this morning, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper in honor of Jesus and obedience to him. We do this because we've been instructed in the scriptures to do it and continue that pattern as we gather together. For us, as we observe the Lord's Supper, it is an act of worship, an act of thanksgiving, because we remember, as the bread teaches us about his broken body for us, as the juice teaches us about his shed blood for us, we remember the saving work of Jesus on our behalf. The table is a reminder of unity, that we, in the same way that through faith we can partake in the body and death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through faith we partake of the elements of the Lord's table and are displaying the unity of the body, which is why, Friends, if, which is why if you're here and you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that you're a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, we'd ask that you just observe and, and celebrate with us. But taking the, the elements is a statement of unity with Christ and unity with his church. And it's a time of remembrance as we reflect on his infinite power to forgive and heal sin and his tender presence to come on that rescue mission and save us. What a, what a glorious way to end this morning. That God in his infinite mercy was strong and powerful enough to wipe away the sin debt and didn't stay separate from us, but came and dwelled among us, that we might behold his power and his glory, that we might know him and the way to salvation, that we might have our sins forgiven and be adopted into his family by grace and through faith. What a gift. In just a moment, the music's going to start to play, and we're going to ask you to come forward. But here's one, one quick logistic thing I'm going to ask you to do. We added the extra tables last time, which was a great idea, and it created quite a traffic, traffic jam, which was a bad idea. So here's what we're going to ask you to do. As we stand and sing, as you come forward, start with the back rows and move forward. So if you're in the back row of the first section, you come first. And when then you, that row clears out, the next row, the next row. Let's do it that way. Maybe we'll get back to our seats without clogging everybody up. We, somebody started a brawl last time. It was really un, un... It was Ken. It was unbecoming. But as we do that, let me... Stand with me, please. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for that holy combination of your infinite power and yet your tender presence, that you are good and strong and mighty, and yet you're here with us in the storm. God, I thank you for the confidence that brings us. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room today who need to be reminded that the one who holds their hand is the one who can calm the sea. They need to be reminded that the shepherd that walks with them is the redeemer sustainer, and the creator of their lives itself. 
Help them to be reminded of your power and your presence. Bring confidence. And as we observe the Lord's Supper today, I pray, God, that in a way that only you can, that you would bring your presence to bear on our hearts, that you would stir our hearts to faith and to good deeds, that we would ponder as we receive these elements your power to forgive sin and your presence on earth. Help us to just get caught up in the glory of the gospel again, the glory of our salvation again. We rejoice that you shed your blood, that you offered yourself as a living sacrifice to pay the sin debt we couldn't pay. Remind us again of the assurance and the confidence and the joy we have in Jesus himself. It's in his name we pray.